You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Bruce Anderson retired from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources in July 2017. During his four years with the DNR, he was assistant wildlife manager and wildlife planner, where he was involved with wildlife damage management, habitat assessments, invasive species management, and interdisciplinary support to timber management. Prior to this, Bruce had a 35-year career with the U.S. Forest Service, where he worked in North and South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, and most recently on the Superior National Forest in northern Minnesota. During his Forest Service career, he worked in program management positions for invasive species, wilderness and wild and scenic rivers, trails, rangeland management, wildlife, fire effects, and recreation. Bruce also worked at length within five wilderness areas on wilderness-related topics, including fire effects monitoring, livestock and recreational grazing, wildlife damage management, invasive species control, motorized use management, and wild and scenic rivers. Bruce, you and I were introduced by a mutual friend, Rob Harding, and via an email, uh, I was interested right away when I looked at the attachment that he sent, which was um, a slideshow of a presentation that you had done called 50 Years Ago Today, How Minnesota's Natural Resources Have Changed Over the Last 50 Years, Perspectives from Longstanding Natural Resource Professionals. You go through this really neat kind of nostalgic trip through 1969, the mood landing, Woodstock, the most watched movie, which was Butch and the Kid Are Back, um, Beatles released Abbey Road, and it goes on and on. I was just like, this is really cool. I've not seen a conservation presentation of any kind start quite this way. <laughs> it's pretty neat. <laughs> then you go on to talk about uh, what you came to talk about, which was... Uh, striking to me uh, that I hadn't really thought about it from this perspective in the way that you present it. But tell people what you did after that in this presentation and the ones that you've done since. You bet. Um, that uh, particular presentation you're referencing was um, part of uh, a wildlife society um, meeting we had this past summer. And the intent uh, was to uh, gather a half dozen uh, professional natural resource managers from agencies and or universities um, that were in the twilight of their career or were retired. And the intent was to, uh, for them to um, present to the audience, you know, what changes they'd seen in the natural landscape during their career and came up on the 50 years ago um, and 50 years back was 1969. So I tried to put it in context to the younger uh, audience members. And, and I'm in my late 60s. And so I can relate pretty well to those events you just mentioned in 69. But I just attempted to frame that uh, to the audience, you know, what was going on, um, and then uh, roll into, um, there, there's been these changes the last 50 years, which have been extremely dramatic and that that was part 
then of uh, a loss of wildlands, a, a larger presentation that I had given in 2014, which was the 50th anniversary, commemorating a 50, 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act. As part of that, uh, the Wilderness uh, Society presentation, I'd had a natural resource career where I had the opportunity to, to live and work in some pretty remarkable places. Uh, working in a variety of, of um, uh, disciplines, including wilderness management, uh, rangeland management, wildlife management, and so forth. And with the trips that I made back and forth from the West to Minnesota, over time I could see the loss of, of wildlands that were occurring, um, both at the local and at the national level. And so I retired from the Forest Service, and I spent two years researching the loss of wildlands, gave that presentation uh, to the Wilderness uh, Society, uh, 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act, and I've given subsequent presentations to various audiences uh, since that time, including the one that you referenced on the, the 50 years ago, uh, 1969, as uh, the reference point. And so that's how it it uh, it came to be, um, and I was pretty uh, disturbed, I guess, um, startled when I started this research just to uh, identify how much of our wildland heritage uh, we had lost. The concern with my what, what kind of world are my grandkids going to see when they're uh, in their mid thirties? They're currently young right now. But I tried to project what we calculate what we've lost since uh, European settlement in the mid 17th century and what would be remaining at the current uh, rate of, of loss of our wildlands, what my grandkids would be able to experience. And it's basically a 99% loss from uh, pre European settlement. Um, today, um, I calculated that. Uh, on what I call unmodified wildlands or pristine wildlands, we've lost 98% in the lower 48. It, it puts, the way that you arrange this puts it in a stark contrast to what our daily lives put us through. You know, there's only so many things that we can hold our attention to in a day's time, a week, a month, year's time. And things slip through our fingers that we don't really realize it's even happening. And I'm saying that from the conservationist perspective, from people who study this stuff all the time, who are always watching this. It's not so clear as I look at your slides, how much has been lost because we're always working primarily on the issue of the day, the thing we need to save today. And we're counting on everybody else to be doing their job in their particular corners of, of the globe. And, um, and you often don't get to just take a step back and look at it in this way. For instance, you say the world's population was 3.6 billion. It's now 7.7. .7 and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, you just don't think, you don't let yourself on a daily basis stop and think about these things. Um, that the Amazon rainforest was 200 million acres larger. Um, and we might even have to go back and, and check that stat, right? Because of all the right. fires and everything that have been uh, yeah. ramped up much, much more since uh, just this year. Um, the CO2 levels were 32% lower. Uh, there are a lot of other stats here. The most stark one being the most, the most impactful one being what you mentioned, the 98% loss of intact wildlands. Um, 
there were at least 10,000 more species on the planet. I would just love to have been at the presentation as you've gone through this, just to feel the energy in the room, because I know that I can't be the only one that had this sort of a reaction to it. And you've since given similar talks like this. What, what is the, um, what's the general feedback from conservationists when they come up to you afterwards in, in going through this presentation with you? Uh, they say, well, man, that was a bummer. Um, <laughs> you know, that's uh, pretty, pretty startling stuff. And, and uh, at the end of the presentation, I have some suggested, well, what do we do? It's kind of a so what question. We've got uh, articulated these problems and the, the, the loss. Um, so, so what? And I, I have a series of recommendations that I think are very doable that would make a difference. But you bring up a great point in that. Um, the, the the points of reference change for each generation. My son's an animator in Seattle, and he put a, a slide together. It's an animation, actually. And I got photos of my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, myself, my kids, and my grandkids. And I tried to calculate the extent of wildlands that existed during each of these generations and and then projecting from my grand grandson's um generation and it's it just blows me away i, I think thomas jefferson envisioned that it would take a hundred generations after the lewis and clark expedition to settle the west the west was settled in five or six generations so you look at the rapidity of that loss over um, you know, five or six generation period, and it uh, it just blows me away. And I remember talking to my dad, who'd probably be he, he passed 25 years ago, but he'd probably be hovering around 100 right now. But I remember him telling me a story when he was a kid in the 1920s in uh, uh, South Central North Dakota, and he would be doing farm work. And he would look up and he would see the sky blackened by migrating waterfowl. And uh, at that time, in the, before the 1930s, the Depression and the Great Drought hit, there were hundreds of millions more ducks than there are today. Um, it was a big push in wetland drainage occurred after World War II. Not that there was wetland drainage occurring in the early 20th century, but during my dad's era, between before the big push of wetland drainage, you know, he was seeing um, a population of wildlife phenomenon that nobody will ever see again. So just talking to him, the waterfowl that he's seen in his generation, his parents, my grandparents, homesteaded in South Central North Dakota, and my grandpa actually was plowing up native prairie, and that's only two generations ago. Mm. And you know, you look at native populations, you go back to European history where the technology or the landscape would be the same for 100 generations. And then the change that we've seen and then just the oral history from uh, uh, from my dad. And uh, one of the neatest stories I, I heard uh, when I first started my federal career, I became friends with a Hidatsa um, elderly and um, an elder with a tribe, and he was in his 80s. This is back in the mid-1970s. And he was telling me his grandpa relayed to the to the whites down along the Yellowstone River that 
custard's custard been wiped out. So I'm I'm talking to a guy that talked to a guy his grandpa witnessed um, the little bighorn, and you know, and so you know, putting that together on how rapidly things have changed, including you know our wildlands, um, is is startling and um, and disconcerting. It's just happening so rapidly, and you know, you just mentioned the rainforest. I I, uh, I do know in in the United States we're losing six thousand acres a, a day to development. And that's mostly forests that's for urban sprawl and then agriculture, a lot of deforestation occurring in Minnesota, my home state, from um, big potato farmers. They've, uh, in the last 10 years, five years, they've uh, taken out tens of thousands of, of native forests to plant the potatoes. So as we speak, Jack, it's, it continues. I doubt that any of us would really want to get out of bed in the morning if the idea of restoration was not an idea. <laughs> that wasn't an right. option in many cases because uh, a couple of your slides in this presentation that are striking, um, among several striking ones, uh, 356 million acres of grasslands used to blanket the prairie and the Great Plains. The slide right after that, and it's, it's a nice... Um, Desert, shrubland, grassland, tall grass prairie, you've got it all laid out in a nice um, map. The next map is the current condition of the lower 48, and you chose to go with a light pollution sort of map where, if you guys can picture it, it's, a, it's, it's laid over uh, satellite imagery of the United States and Mexico and Canada, and, um, and it just shows all the lights all the way across the continent, all the way across the country. <laughs> And there's something to be said for, I know that a lot of young people are really angry about what's about to be lost or what is potentially going to be lost. And that's what everybody is focused on primarily. But this step back to look at what has been lost, to put into perspective the preciousness of whatever anyone is out there trying to save now in terms of wildlands or connectivity, um, it's just... It's maddening. It's given me chills just talking about it and looking at this map right now. And uh, you really can't blame the younger generations for waking up, uh, coming up in a, in a world when they look at this and being extremely angry. But I think it's also very educational in the terms of we cannot mess around anymore. We really can't. You know that Dave Foreman probably said something similar to this back in the 70s. You know, <laughs> we can't mess around yeah. anymore. And in the 80s and yeah. in the 90s, and, and um, it still feels sort of like we're messing around. Um, what do you think about that when, when people get this perspective, when the light kind of turns on, when, when, you've, when they've sort of come full circle and realize that um, we're really only talking about the tiniest of scraps that are left on the whole planet? Um, so there's a whole litany of things that people can do. And, and one of my objectives is to try to generate that passion. Um, it's not to generate a totally pessimistic, you know, I'm going to go, you know, jump off a cliff or you know, just lock myself in my bedroom for forever. It's intended to motivate people, even in their own little way, to, to make a difference. And, um, you know, like at the county level, I know there's been myself and others have, have become involved on um, invasive species, you know, identifying 
various invasive species, particularly plants, identifying native habitats that are are being threatened, and then bringing that forward to the county board. And they have taken actions to to manage for that. Um, so there's a whole series of starting small that um, individuals can do, and then collectively it, it can make a difference. One of the things I guess in my career, um, what I did in the paper, and I personally seen um, the effects of agriculture on on wildlands, forest fragmentation, uh, mining. I spent a lot of time as a rangeland management specialist working with ranchers out west and grazing allotments. I was involved with uh, energy development, oil and gas. Uh, I've seen what unmanaged motorized recreation can do, um, urban sprawl, and, and then a big one uh, that I alluded to earlier is, is uh, invasive species, which have blanketed tens of millions of acres in the U.S., uh, primarily out west. But there are individually things uh, people can do. There'll be a lot of blind alleys or a lot of dead ends, but it's just if you're passionate enough, you're going to have success at some point, and it might be at a small scale, and that you can become involved with projects uh, at a larger scale. A person makes a conscious decision, you know, is a glass half empty or half full, and otherwise you, you know, you, you would go insane. I think one of the most positive things I can think of, of getting people to understand where we've come from, what we've lost, what we've really lost in totality, like, not in the last decade, but over a, a longer span of time, is it makes you, when you're at the county board, uh, standing up at a hearing or protesting or doing petitions or whatever you're doing, it gives you a little bit more backbone. Because if you know the history, especially of your local area, and you're doing this in a local way, you're not looking at the big, big picture, but the picture on the ground where you are, if you understand what's been lost already and you understand that the mode of humanity has always been just degrees of attrition, which to its logical conclusion, there's pavement over everything. There's lights everywhere. There's fractioned up, yeah. you know, non, non uh, wild or biodiverse nature all over the place. If we let this go to its natural conclusion, because everybody at one of those board meetings always says, we're only taking this. It's only going right. to be this. We've only this our way to the present state. <laughs> of of biodiversity loss and extinction and fragmentation. That's why I was so interested in getting you here because it is depressing, no doubt. And people can take a very negative view of it and would be right to do so. But then it's what you do after right. that. It's what you do when you pull yourself back up out of that, you know, get your jaw back up off the floor and go, what do we do now? Well, know your stats, know this stuff. Yeah, that's a really excellent point, Jack, is knowing where you want to go is knowing where you've been. But one of the recommendations that I had is um, when I was with the Forest Service, you know, there would be an individual working on a small trails project or a small timber sale or a small burn. And I, uh, one of the recommendations is those agency people that are working in their project need to be aware of the cumulative effects of basically hovering up, you know, if, if you're looking at a, a prescribed burn over, a, let's say, a thousand acres within the northeast, northeast of your county, you need to hover up and see what's going on 
in your part of the state, let's say the northeast part of the state, then you need to hover up and see what are the projects or activities occurring at the state level. And then you need to hover up and look at a multi-state to see how your project fits in context of what else is going on at multiple scales. And that may influence your local project in terms of mitigation you may apply or a different alternative you may select. Um, for example, in Minnesota, I, you know, uh, state agency or federal agency people working on timber sales up in uh, northeast Minnesota, where we have the Superior National Forest and a lot of public land, they need to recognize of the wetland drainage that's occurring in the northwest part of the Minnesota, the loss of prairie uh, or grassland conservation reserve um, properties in the southwest part. They need to recognize that there's a unmanaged ATV um, increases at the state level. Invasive species are spreading at the state level. There's mining in southeast Minnesota for frack sands to use in the Bakken oil field out west. And so as an individual works on their particular project, they need to hover up and be aware of everything going on. And that may influence how you approach your project when you know how yours fits in to the bigger picture. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I think there's some future tech here. I know that there probably are some projects like this and listeners are welcome to comment wherever you're listening uh, if you know of any kind of projects like this, but I'm picturing a database. We've got all this technology and most of it is used to extract and cut down and burn and consume or prep, prep machines for building things that we consume. What if you are that land manager and you've got this prescribed thousand acre burn or something that you have to deal with and you log into a, a system that tells you you might want to hold off on that for a certain amount of time because this giant database produces all of these potential conflicts and it's a biocentric view of land management where it says there's going to be a certain bird migration coming through at this period of time that you're thinking about doing this burn and they rely completely on this area. So if you could hold off on that or it would offer some suggestions, you know, as I right. hear the words coming out of my mouth, I'm like, why doesn't something like that already exist anyway? When you say hover up, you're putting all the onus on a person's background, their level of caring uh, or study on the biocentric view of the, the land that they're, or even that they even have one. It's all upon them, but if there was a system that everybody had to tap into before they made, you know, private or public land, you know, decisions to just kind of go, could I do this better or could I do this at a different time or should I do this at all and have a database tell you, here are all the potential conflicts that you may want to do it differently this way. Does that sound too fantastical to happen or do you know of instances where there are things like this in existence today? That's a great point. I'm I'm not aware of one-stop shopping 
like that. I do know that when I work for the Forest Service, you do have, uh, let's say that person doing a thousand acre burn, he or she would interact with the wildlife people and the wilderness people if it's near the wilderness and the recreation people and get some of those question questions answered. For example, if it's a wildlife, um, if it's a burn and there's concerns on wildlife, the, the wildlife biologist on that forest would be aware of important critical time frames for migration or nesting and so forth. But like with the Forest Service, a lot of that cumulative uh, analysis applied to federal lands. I mean, that's what they were responsible for. And right, you know, next door could be uh, state of Minnesota lands, which there is. And and I've kind of got a perspective. I worked for the feds for um, 38 years and in the state, both natural resource um, positions for four years. And I could see some of the strengths and weaknesses between the state and federal land management agencies. And, but I, you're right. Often we wouldn't know what was going on with the state unless we took a deliberate effort to get a hold of that resource manager and pull out that in. And then you would have in, in um, interwoven into that county lands and the county folks are doing their thing, and I wasn't aware unless you made a direct contact on, you know, what activities the county was doing to blend in then with your knowledge of what the state is doing with what you're doing. And that's that wasn't happening on a on a corporate large scale. It was individuals may make those contacts, and you know, as background information for the decision, some teams we're interagency where you would get multiple agencies, but it probably wouldn't go beyond one or two counties. You wouldn't really know what's going on in the other parts of the state, which just like you said, would be good to know when you're working on your specific project. I can sense our primitiveness right now. (laughs) I just got a glimpse of what it's going to look like if someone's around in 300 years, 500 years to look back, I hope so, and see that we didn't even have this very simple idea in play now. I mean, rapaciously gobbling up every single thing in our sites and not taking any stock and just relying on, you know, agencies to have meetings and say, okay, when you guys are ready to do stuff like this on this list, consult with these guys over here and you guys over here. And it, seems so hearsay in a in an advanced right. otherwise advanced part of humanity that has all the technology to solve this problem in terms of interagency communication and um, organizational and agency stuff because there's a giant wall between organizations and federal and state agencies in many ways in terms of information sharing and it's like we've got this finite thing and we're gobbling it all up and we have no actual idea with the ability to have an idea, but we just haven't done it, what's going on and what kind of effects um, we're creating out there with simple little on the ground projects that add up to be systemic. Yeah. Yeah. There are less complicated databases, correlative databases out there. I mean, just launching uh, one of Elon Musk's rockets has far, far more lines of code in it than what I'm talking about here. It is not unheard of at all. Um, it is fully within our ability and our means to do something like this. And that we don't have that now is striking to me. 
Yeah, no, those are some great points. And, you know, you look, um, there are some pretty impressive databases that are pretty much just limited to that a particular resource. You know, for example, the state and the federal government do have a pretty good invasive species database. Fire folks have a pretty impressive database. Uh, wilderness folks have an impressive database and, and so forth. But like you're suggesting, that linkage, you know, between invasive species management and urban sprawl, um, you know, to, ha to have that connection or uh, um, forest insects and disease, you know, having that linkage to, to other resources because they're connected, right? I mean, you have a forest, a dryland forest, and you get oak wilt in and you kill all the old trees, you increase the the risk for unwanted hot wildfires, you know, you're going to have impacts on those savanna prairie type critters um, that are, at least in savanna rely on the, the old oaks that are now dying, uh, you know, and it's just, it's just a cascading effect. Um, but yeah, it would be just, it'd be great to have, um, you know, some databases where if you're working on a, a project, you can, you can put it in context at multiple scales, like I said, and, and then uh, that would influence uh, your decision and ultimately the outcome. It, I was just reminded of an episode we did with Keith Bowers, who's the founder of Biohabitats, who are in the business of restoring really complex habitat, you know, wetlands and things. If you really get into it, I learned in that uh, interview, he said something to the effect of, we really don't know exactly what we're doing. And I'm like, well, I had to dig into that. I'm like, wait a minute, we're supposed to know all kinds of stuff by now. We've been studying all these. He's like, we don't know how the bait, we know how to do certain things in nature to do, to affect positive restoration in the direction that we want it to go. But we don't know why a lot of those things happen. And so right. we're kind of just poking at nature to this day, only knowing one layer of an we have an ability to restore a wetland to what seems to be its former glory but we don't know other than the things that we did and the plantings and the digging and the and the cleaning of the water and things like the very remedial stuff we still don't know how it is a wetland in some ways and it was very humbling to talk to somebody who does this and i always thought people like that they have all the answers he's like we don't really know we're not, we're not good enough. We're not advanced enough in our technology, our science, or anything to know somehow uh, how nature does what nature does. We just know what the parts are supposed to be, and we kind of put them together and then, let na and then we have to back up and let, let nature do that thing we still don't understand. It was, it was kind of a neat um, revelation, sort of scary, too, that we're poking around like we do, and we don't even know how to put things exactly back together, how nature knits itself back together once we put what we feel like are the requisite pieces to become a wetland again, uh, a, a, a healthy one, how it sews itself back together. Cause that last step is all nature and nothing to do with man. Yeah. And it's, and that's a really good point. And it's the unfortunate thing is, you know, the goalposts keep changing, you know, in a world of climate change, you know, right now, which is, we're, we're seeing it in our backyards and then with the proliferation of, of, of exotic, organisms coming in from other continents as well as other disturbance factors if you think you got it figured out all of a sudden you're dealing with a, a warming climate 
and uh, a new exotic pest that's rolled in and it's it's changed the whole dynamic from what it was five years ago. A lot of the conservationists and land managers, you know, talk about uh, trying to manage plant communities within that range of natural variation with pre- total, you know, pre-European settlement on one end of the spectrum, which is totally, nat- you know, natural structure, composition, and function. And then you go to the other end of the, the spectrum, which would be a Walmart parking lot, we're looking at a, a natural landscape or looking at a, you know, a green landscape, it's going to fall somewhere in that continuum. And there's a, you know, recognition today that with climate change and pollutants in the atmosphere and the soil and so forth, you'll never, you'll never achieve that pre-settlement condition. It's just not possible now. But, the, you know, you shoot for that goal and it might not be what Lewis and Clark saw, but if you can get 70% of the representation, you know, if you can move in that direction, that's all you can do. You know, looking at a farm field, for example, you know, bare words, fallowed soil, it'd be better from a wildlife standpoint to have that, that field and grass. And if the grass happened to be um, like Kentucky bluegrass or orchard grass and an introduced species, that grass is still better than the black field. If you can convert, convert that tame grass into a native prairie, the native prairie is better than the tame field, which is better than the black field. So as you go on that continuum, you're trying to push to the extent you can in that direction. It's almost and, like um, we we should, in some cases, be more concerned with what nature can do than what nature has done in a particular area, because in some cases you're not getting that back. Right. But but if we were more enamored with what nature can do and in all of that, then we wouldn't mind as much. It wouldn't hurt so deeply, at least for me, to that you're looking at an area that looks beautiful again, that's been restored, but it's not what it was. Because sometimes people can right. get hung up on that, right? They want to bring back the... Yep megalodons and the or whatever uh, yeah you know and it's not really going to be about that and the planet if you understand it never was about that it it was always about change and nature was yeah. doing a good job of it before we started to do our own version of change right. it is an interesting topic also to bring up the climate crisis because if you're restoring and you know if if biohabitats is in an area right now in south carolina or something restoring something what are they that is a really interesting question what are you restoring to what are you restoring for and what considerations are you taking for the best estimate of what's going to happen in the next 50 years with climate change there might be some species you're restoring for now that won't be able to live there in 50 years anyway so what do you restore for what a complex situation and there are yeah and there are uh, scientists that are working in that you know and it's there's a lot of uncertainty but you know the climate's warming the big question is it going to be warmer and wetter or warmer and drier at least in parts of minnesota where i live and i think you know, the, it, the answer warmer, is yes right now isn't it just flat out yes warmer and drier in new mexico and it's warmer and wetter in eastern minnesota and there's scientists that basically say in 50 years, um, central Minnesota is going to look like Indiana. And so they do try to get trees. For example, they have a tree app. There's a lot of scientists working, trying to, you know, working on this topic and trees that 
are in the northern range of Indiana, approaching the southern range of Minnesota, as they plant new trees, they're taking species from further south and planting them further further north, anticipating then when those small trees become mature, they'll probably be able to um, not thrive, but be able to do okay because to the tree, it looks like Indiana. And then as you go into northern Minnesota, those boreal tree species that have, you know, were on the southern extent in northern Minnesota, they'll probably disappear. A lot of the jack pine, um, black spruce, and other trees probably just would be too hot. But there'll be trees from the Ohio River Valley that would migrate into uh, uh, southern Minnesota. So being around as long as you have gives you a certain perspective. Um, you've seen a lot of things. You don't have to read a lot of things uh, to get an idea for how things were when you live through an awful lot of the stuff that people talk about. Other people, younger people, have to rely on um, research. And um, they weren't there. It wasn't a firsthand experience for them. For all, And it's still recent history. The human life is insufferably short. And... Uh, universally insignificant when you get right down to it. But there are those of us who have lived longer than others. And tell me a little bit about what that perspective is like. When you look at conservation now, when you think about the things that can be done in a human lifetime, the, the, the rate of change that you've researched thoroughly, um, especially since 1969, at least for that presentation, I mean, you have a, you have a different way of looking at things, don't you? You do. You know, again, I, I, I try to take it, you know, what can I realistically contribute to? So I personally will look at local, you know, regional issues to, to become engaged with. An issue that I'm very much engaged with now is there's proposed mining, hard rock mining, right up against the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Uh-huh. And I spent 12, 12 years with the Forest Service working there. Part of my job was to monitor, track on how uh, the wilderness forests uh, changed post-fire. There was a lot of fires, prescribed burning, and then wildfires. And my job was, or part of the job was to to document what forests were coming back based on how hot those fires burned. And that place is near and dear to millions of people. It's the largest water-based wilderness in the United States and one of the more heavily used in the United States. And so you got this gem of a wilderness and there's a Chilean mining company that has leased the minerals up on that national forest, Superior National Forest, up against the Boundary Waters. And their intent is to to develop a full-blown copper-nickel mine. And they say, well, it's not in the wilderness. Well, it's physically not, but the noise, the pollution, the water quality is going to impact the wilderness. And so that is an effort that I am, I've written letters to congressional folks, I've written letters to the press. So it's, you know, one individual that I, me, I've gotten um, uh, pretty plugged into this particular issue. I'm doing what I can with organizations to save the boundary waters as well as individually to push back. And it's frustrating because this Chilean Miner, who's a billionaire, is connected to Trump. And under the Obama administration, they had basically put mining off limits for 20 years up against the wilderness because it was so such a sensitive environment. And last year, Trump flew to northern Minnesota and he said northern Minnesota is back open for mining. And so he's issued 
his administration is pushing now for this mining to go forward. And it'll, if, it, if it ever did, it would change, totally change the character of an international wilderness. And that would be gone for good, be gone forever. And so that's an example of a project that one person is getting involved with. And there's a thousand other people just like me that are pushing back. And then there's wildlife issues and logging issues, forestry issues that now that I'm retired, I'm engaged with. And so to answer your question is, it's very easy to get discouraged and disillusioned, but it's a forceful de decision on my part to be, I have to look at it with the glass half full because the alternative is, you know, turning away from it, it's going to happen if I'm, you know, if I and others are, are engaged to try to push back on it, there's a chance that it may make a difference in stopping that mining. I'm noticing a theme. Uh, the last episode, Kenyon Fields talked about sometimes all he can do and what he really wants to do is go pick up a shovel and get down to a riparian area and start uh, digging, start yeah. um, getting rid of the invasive species and planting saplings. And I think that you guys are really good representatives of what a lot, a lot, a lot of people are doing, which is stay busy. Yep. I mean, for no other reason. And I think he, he even said, even if it doesn't amount to anything, if the saplings I plant don't get to be 200 year old mature trees for some reason, because of, you know, climate change or whatever, I still have to do it because what else would I do? And it sounds like that's exactly what you're saying as well. I'm constantly, when I find invasive plants, I go over and pull them, you know, and my grandsons are with me. I say, okay, you pull that and you, you, you pull those over there. And, and then I'll, I went out after that and my grandson will say, hey, grandpa, here's another buckthorn over here. Here's another, you know, say, go pull it. And so at that young age, trying to ingrain that little bit of land ethic, that stewardship that Aldo Leopold talked about, and at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm very discouraged or I guess sad knowing that my grandsons will never see some of the wild country that I seen in, its, um, in the 1970s before oil and gas went crazy out in some of the intermountain basins when invasive species, a lot of them were just getting started. And so they, like we talked about earlier, that point of reference, I, I'll never see what my dad's seen with all of the waterfall my grandkids will never seen what I seen before some of the extensive oil and gas field development that's occurred in the last 30 years. Um, and so, but I still, you know, taking them out and, you know, and I'll stop them and say, listen, and I'll point out, a, you know, a songbird and they're starting to pick up on that grandpa, there's such and such. So it's a incremental thing. Um, and I know thousands or your listeners, thousands and thousands of people are doing the same thing. And it, one can only hope it'll make a difference at some point. And um, hopefully there, we won't reach a point in our return. I like that you took it away from the big picture stuff earlier when you, when you were talking about just working in the local, find something to do. Because if we think completely about the entire system, there are people who are dedicated to that full time. The big, big picture, the 30,000 foot view, yep. the way everything ties together. Um, and that might be the thing that people listening now uh, would like to focus on, that we need people in all areas. But when you're pulling buckthorn or you're doing something, it, the, the difference, whether or not you made one, you made a difference right there. You made a difference 
right in that moment. And if you, yeah. I think if, if I allowed myself to think, well, how is this going to defeat um, the policies that Trump's put in action by pulling this weed? Well, I would not get out of bed once again. That day would just, you know, you can't look at it that way. You have to have, and I think that's where the hope lies is just, I'm just going to do what I know is right to do and I'm going to affect change and recognize when you do, no matter how small it might seem in the giant scheme of things, you have to understand there's people like you and Kenyon and, and the thousands thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people out there doing the same little things. And it has a giant, giant effect. Yeah, it does. And one of the recommendations I have, and I think it's very doable, and I don't think it would it would be a financial hardship on anybody. But in Minnesota, they passed about 10 years ago, what they called uh, the Minnesota Legacy Program, where voters voted in a three-eighths of 1% sales tax on all purchases in Minnesota to be used for natural resource um, management. And it's, it's really has paying dividends. I mean, a lot of, you know, it's raised hundreds of millions of dollars over the last 10 years. And those funds are used to buy uh, state parks, um, wildlife areas, uh, for trails, for invasive species management. And if something like that could be applied at this national level, where if there was a a three-eighths of 1% sales tax at the national level, I estimated based on U.S. consumers spending about $14 trillion per year, if we took three-eighths of 1% of a natural resource sales tax, we could generate between 50 and $100 billion a year that could be rolled back into natural resource management conservation efforts uh, nationwide. And i and I think, like I said, that's doable. And I, I don't think the average consumer w- would be bothered in that in the least. Your grandkids are going to grow up and one day they're going to be pulling something out of the ground and their kid is going to hopefully just one kid, not 2.5, but one kid is yeah. going to say, what are you doing, daddy? Well, my grandpa taught me this. This is what we do. And when you see a plant like this, you, I mean, take heart in that kind of stuff. And listeners also realize that we are operating in a, in a current situation, a current context, but things go on. And um, what we do now has an effect on the future and on people in the future and take heart in those things. Imagine those things. For grandparents and parents out there, if you're looking to get something for your child or grandchild, I'd recommend buying the book Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. This is something I'm gonna have require my grandkids to read when they're old enough to, to take it in. But that kind of sets the stage for a young adult to to get that land ethic that Leopold referred to. That's the Bible and conservation is that book, and I'm sure you read it. It's uh, it sets the stage, and young adults need to be tuned into that book when they're you know adolescents or young teenagers. Thank you, Bruce, for being on Rewilding Earth today, and thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. 
To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.